0: Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. I want to read the first five verses of the book of Galatians. First five verses. Galatians 1 verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, God the Father, who raised Him from the dead. amen about 300 years before christ so we're looking at 300 years before christ now if you remember finishing up the prophets you remember there was about a 400 year period of silence between malachi and john the baptist remember that a lot of stuff happens during that time okay A lot of stuff happens. The Persians earn power, the Greeks come to power, the Romans come to power during all that time. But about 300 years before the time of Christ, there was a group of people who leave what is modern day France. Okay? So if you kind of know a little bit about the geography of Europe, have a little you know, France, if you're looking at the map and you've got Israel down here, Mediterranean Sea, and where we're going is north of that okay france is sitting over here so there's a group of people that leave france they start to migrate this group of people were called the gauls now they were heathens they were barbarians they weren't civilized in in any real modern sense of the word and so they leave and they start to migrate and there were a bunch of migrations and it was a bunch of these people that start to migrate And so they leave, they migrate from what is modern-day France. They invade Macedonia, and they invade Greece. Okay? So they invade. Now, prior to this, they did something else. They attacked Rome. Now, Rome wasn't a power. Okay? When they did this, Rome was was growing. But it wasn't the power that Rome would would be. But uh, they did invade Macedonia, They did invade Greece. And then they moved from there. They moved into what is known as Asia Minor. Now, if you want to know where that is, on a modern map, Israel sits here, north of Israel, up where you have Iraq, Iran, and all that. Afghanistan sitting over here. China sitting over here. Russia sitting here. India down here. Afghanistan over here. So Israel here. And then you move up and you have, you know, Iran, Iraq, Syria, those places. And then if you went to the north of the Mediterranean Sea, there's a strip of land sitting there that was Asia Minor. That is modern day Turkey. So if you look at a political map now, well, the area we're talking about is modern-day Turkey. So what these Gauls do is they migrate, they invade, and they come in, and they take. One of, the, one of the ancient historians in describing this migration said, man, they were numerous. He said, they filled all of Asia. So we're not talking about a little migration. Apparently, this was a pretty large migration. It happened over a period of years, and 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 they kind of wandered and did. And there was, from what I understand of the history of this time, there were several different migrations of this. But they were a very fierce people. They were warriors. They were warriors, and uh, but they were heathens. They were heathens. They were pagans. Now, if you skip forward to the fall of Rome, then you know these barbarians, these tribes, played a large role in coming out of the north and invading Rome and the fall of Rome. And Rome fought with these groups all the time uh, to the north. But they were fierce, they were terrifying warriors, they were heathens, they were pagans. They worshipped what they called the mother of the gods. They had a lot of gods, but one of their main gods was the mother of all gods, and she was called Agdistus. She was considered to be the mother of all gods. Actually, the Gauls were made up of at least three tribes. Okay? So there were at least three different tribes of Gauls in this. Some of the ancient historians describe them as being tall. Again, fierce, warlike. Some of them describe them as going around half-naked all the time. Imagine that. Okay? Okay? Uh, But again, they were fierce. In 189 BC, all right, so 300 years before the time of Christ, they start this migration. They end up here in what's modern day Turkey. So about 200 years before Christ, Rome's gaining strength. Rome's able to subdue these people. And they're able to sort of force them to submit to them. And they keep a thumb on them uh, for the most part. And then you rock on about another 160, 170 years, and about 25 years before the time of Christ, the last king, the last king, um, Amentus, who was the last king of the Gauls, and they had established this kingdom up there. He was the last king. He dies. When he died, what he did was he said, at my death, Rome's going to take over the territory." By now, Rome's a power. Okay? So Rome's a power. He's probably pretty smart knowing when I die, they're going to do it anyway. So let's try to have some political peace and so forth. So he dies. Rome takes over the area. And what Rome does is they add to this northern area, they add to it these southern provinces, and they create a political province, and they called it Galatia. Prior to this political province, whenever anyone referred to Galatia, they were referring to that northern part where the Gauls had settled all those years. But now Rome sort of takes it and says, well, we're going to take it and create this new province. And so you have sometimes when people would refer to Galatia, they were talking about ethnic, which is the northern part. Sometimes they referred to Galatia. They were talking about the political Galatia, the province that Rome had created. What's amazing is that what we read in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, Paul goes on his first missionary missionary journey. He goes with Barnabas. They're at the church of Antioch. They're worshiping, and the Holy Spirit says, separate me out, Paul and Barnabas. I have something for them to do. And so God sends them on the first missionary trip. Well, guess where they went? They went to this area. They went to this area. And man, when you read through that section, you read Paul suffered, man. I mean, this was not this was not strolling through, you know, a place where the gospel had already saturated the area. This was heathen land. This was pagan land. These were people that were hardened to the gospel. But by the time Paul goes up there and preaches, what had happened is commerce had happened. They were. They had a little bit of an economy that had built up. And, and there were some Jewish people who had migrated up to this area and established businesses and so forth. So Paul and Barnabas come through the area. They preach the gospel in the area. And we read of some of these places in the book of Acts. They preach the gospel. People are saved. And churches are planted. Now there's a gospel witness among these heathens with a few Jews sprinkled in and out throughout these areas. So there's a gospel church there. Paul and Barnabas have been preaching. We also read in Acts chapter 18, that on Paul's third missionary journey, he goes into this area again. Okay? So, when we read the book of Galatians, and when Paul mentions Galatia, we're not quite sure whether he means ethnic Galatia, or he means political Galatia. Really doesn't matter for what he's writing and what he's saying, but some try to see and understand it does affect maybe when the book was written, maybe just a little bit. Okay? Paul goes to this area in Barnabas, they preach the gospel, churches are started. God did a great work in this area. He did a great work in Galatia, in this area. And he did this great work among a heathen pagan people. He did it, and it was through the preaching of the gospel that people were saved and churches were planted. Now, God's doing a great work now. Realize that? I mean, I know you could cut the news on and watch the news and, and become so you know, in despair and so depressed about what's happening, and you're thinking, what in the world? Is this? I'm, I'm just here to tell you, God is doing a great work throughout the world right now. God has always been doing a great work. Always been at work. He's always been at work through the preaching of the gospel and people being saved, churches being planted in places. Some of these places we, 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 we never even heard of. In fact, when we get to heaven, we're probably going to find out there were such great works in places we didn't even know about. God was moving. He's moving. He's working. And He's working throughout the world now. Even among rebellious, hardened sinners, God's moving. God is working. So, when we come to the first part of the book of Galatians, there are two prior works to this great work God did through Paul and Barnabas. And in these prior works that Paul mentions, what we're going to look at and try to discern is, okay, if God's doing a great work now, what's my place in it? Right? I mean, what, what's my place in it? What does he have us to do? What would he have us as a church, as Damascus Baptist Church? What's our place in this great work? What is it that we're to do? If he's working and moving, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be sort of on the sidelines. I, I don't want to be kind of on the sidelines. You know, yesterday was the opening of college football, right? Well, I know there were other games, but it's the first big weekend, right? So you got that guy who's third or fourth string sitting on the sidelines, you know, just wanting to get in and this and that. No, I I, I don't want to be on the sidelines just saying, oh, gee, I I hope I could get in the game. Whatever God's doing, we should desire to be in it and part of it and saying to him, you use us however you see fit. Use us as a church, use us as individuals. But in this opening section, in this open salutation of the letter, there's two great prior works that Paul mentions. Two works that happened before the great work of Paul and Barnabas going and preaching the gospel. Some look at the book of Galatians and they've called it the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. The reformers loved the book of Galatians. Luther loved it. In fact, Luther loved it so much he called it his wife. He called it my little Katie. He loved Galatians. And Paul in this, it's Paul, he's writing the book of Galatians. We're not quite sure, probably the late 40s. So we're looking at sometime within 15, 20 years after the time of Christ. Sometime probably in that period where he first goes into the area. It's before the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 because he would have used that decision in what he writes in Galatians, but he doesn't. Some have dated the book a little later than that. So what's the problem? Why, why does he write this book? Why does he write this letter? He writes this letter because there were a bunch of agitators who had come into the church. Agitators. Historically, they've called them Judaizers. So these would have been Jewish people who were claiming to be Christian. The way Paul treats them, it's almost as if Paul's saying, eh, I'm not quite sure they're believers at all. They don't understand the gospel. They're, they're, they've created a new gospel. But they were apparently Jewish people who were saying they were believers and they they had filtered into the churches and in some way they were using the Old Testament and circumcision is going to be the big issue that Paul's going to bring up. But somehow they were using the Old Testament and they had convinced these Gentile believers, these believers who had been converted out of heathenism and paganism and had come to Christ and come to faith in Christ and were in the church, somehow they had convinced them probably through their use of the Old Testament, because Paul uses the Old Testament a lot in the book of Galatians. He's probably correcting some misunderstandings here. But they probably convinced him something like this. Yeah, 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 it's okay for you to be Christian. But you know what? Yeah, okay, you've believed in Jesus, but there's something else you need to do. And that's something else you need to do, is you need to get circumcised. You need to get circumcised. And you need to keep the law. And and, and in essence, you need to become like, like a Jew. You need to become like a Jew. And so evidently, these Gentile believers were in this state of confusion. Wait a minute, Paul didn't say anything about that. Paul said believe in Christ. And so they're causing great harm and trouble in the church. And Paul fires off this letter to these churches. This would have been a circular letter, so it wasn't to one church, like when we read to the church at Corinth. There was one church he's writing to. We don't know how many churches were established. There was quite a few, evidently. So this letter would have been sent to the region and then circulated throughout the churches. And Paul's correcting this. Now, in these two prior works that Paul mentions, he's going to mention two things that become the central focus... Of his message. And the first thing that he mentions is his apostleship. His apostleship. The second thing that he mentions as a prior work is the salvation that we have in Christ. What did Jesus actually do? What did he actually do? So these two great works, these two great prior works of God, before the great work of Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel, churches being planted. These two works, these two prior works, what we want to try to do is try to see, okay, what's our place in this whole thing? Well, verses 1 through 5 is one sentence. It's a salutation. When you, you, you generally write a letter, I don't know if you write, we don't write letters anymore. You don't do this much on email. You don't do this on text messages either, do you? You don't have this long salutation where you say, oh, dear so-and-so, and go into the... But letters used to be written this way. Um... Paul's following a pretty standard way of writing, salutation, which is an opening. But then he jumps right into it in verse 6 and he says, I'm astonished at you. He's going to say things like, Who's bewitched you? You foolish Galatians. He, 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 he's not sugarcoating anything here because what's at stake is the gospel. But these first five verses, this one sentence, is the salutation. And here's the first thing that he says. Notice this. Paul would have been well known. They would have known exactly who this is. And he says this, Paul, an apostle. Sometimes Paul will refer to himself as a servant. Sometimes he refers to himself as a slave. But here, and this is an early letter this is one of his earliest letters. This is certainly before 1 Corinthians, where in Corinthians he's defending his apostleship. But right out of the gate he says, Paul, an apostle, an apostle. Now, we know Paul, Saul, in Acts chapter 9, Right? Saul, the one persecuting the church, the one wrecking havoc on the church and so forth, and all of this that happens. We know that's Saul. Saul's converted. But it's not until Acts chapter 13, verse 9, that he's first called Paul. I don't think there's anything magical about why he's Saul and Paul. I just think that he's called Saul in a Jewish context. He's called Paul in a Gentile context. It's Jewish name Saul. Greek name, Gentile name, Paul. I think that's the reason for it. But in Acts chapter 13, verse 9, Saul, he's first called Paul there in the book of Acts. Luke refers to him as Paul. But here, what he's referring to as apostle is the apostle of the highest order. The apostle was one sent. This is one that was sent. That's literally what apostle means. And so we have the 12, right? We know the 12 apostles. Jesus picks these 12. He chooses these 12. But then when you read throughout the New Testament, there are other people who are referred to as being apostles. But it's not in this official sense of the office of apostle like the 12. Okay? Barnabas is called an apostle in Acts chapter 14. Epaphroditus. It's called an apostle in Philippians chapter 2. But not apostle in the sense that Paul is saying an apostle. Paul is clearly placing himself in and with and among the twelve. This is the highest order. The highest order. But notice what he says. Not. Not is brought to the front of this phrase. Because it's emphatic. This is what he's wanting to make clear. Paul, an apostle, not from men. Now I want you to notice, men's plural, right? Not from men, nor through man. Singular. I'm an apostle, but I didn't receive it from a bunch of men. I was not appointed by a bunch of men. Nor through a man. No one taught me this. He is going to defend himself, and, and in a way, Paul's going to seem to have these little, throw these little zings, these little barbs at the twelve in Jerusalem from time to time. He's going to have a confrontation with Peter that was a, that was pretty significant. He's going to talk about it. But he wants us to understand, and he wants the Galatians to understand, and he wants the false teachers to understand, because part of probably what they were doing was attacking his apostleship. You don't want to listen to Paul. He's not an apostle. He wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't one of the twelve. He wasn't. I mentioned this Wednesday night. You remember when Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh? Remember he said, there's a thorn in my side, and I prayed, and God would would remove it, and he just comes back and says, no, no, my grace is sufficient, and uh, and, and, and he calls that thorn something interesting. It may have very well been a physical problem, possibly. But he calls that thorn something interesting. He says it was a messenger from Satan. It's possible that it was these agitators. They followed him everywhere he went and caused him so much grief and so much problem, they're doing it here in the Galatian churches. You don't want to listen to Paul. You don't want to listen to him. I mean, look, the guy, from what we know of history and what we know of even some of what glimpses we get in Scripture, Paul himself talks about how, you know, he couldn't speak well, probably didn't look well. You don't want to follow that guy. He looks funny. He looks strange. He talks strange. Ah, oh, he can write good, though. We'll give him that. Even Peter acknowledges that later. But this is a little guy. He's, he's, he's not, you don't want to follow him. And so you have these agitators, they're attacking his apostleship, and he comes right out of the gate and says, look, I was not, I didn't receive this from men, no group of men, whether in Jerusalem or anywhere else. Nobody gave me my apostleship. Nobody taught me this. But where did it come? You see this? But through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He's putting them together. Don't overlook that. He's equating the two. They have the same authority. They have the same power. They both called me the same way, which makes them one. It makes them the same. This is where my apostleship came from. But notice what he says. He puts this qualifier, and this is referring to God the Father, who raised Him from among the dead. That's an aorist participle, which means he's stating a fact here. This is what God the Father did. He raised him, that is Christ. You notice this Jesus Christ and God the Father. The Father raised the Son, raised Christ from among the dead. This is a fact. Isn't it interesting that he starts with the Apostle and he talks about the Father raising the Son from the dead? I just wonder if he's not suddenly reminding them, don't you know, one of the requirements, one of the qualifications for an apostle was that they had to have seen the resurrected Christ. And I could just hear the false teacher say, He didn't see him, he wasn't there. Well, Paul picks this up. Paul talks about it to the Corinthians. And he calls himself, you know what? I'm an apostle, but I was one born out of time. Yeah, I wasn't with the twelve. But I saw him. I saw the resurrected Christ. Where did he see him? Acts 9, Damascus Road. I saw him. I spoke with him. So yeah, he saw the resurrected Christ. And then he says this, and all the brethren who were with me. So there were others that apparently were with him. We know this as a fact. We know this, that what people would travel with Paul, he He had people that were with him. We know some of their names. There are no names mentioned here. At the end of the book of Romans, Romans 16, he lists a whole bunch of people. Man, he lists a bunch of people there. So he would have had people with him. They're probably with him as he's writing this letter. And so he mentions them, although not by name. What I think is interesting here, too, is he's saying, I'm an apostle, not from men nor through man, but from Christ and God the Father who raised Christ From the dead. And guess what? There are others with me. They're fellow soldiers. They're fellow workers. And I send them. They're not apostles like me. I send them. In a sense, they're under his authority. So he mentions these others that are with him. Then he says to the churches at Galatia. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we're not sure is this northern Galatia, ethnic Galatia, southern Galatia, political Galatia. These are the churches. What we do know is that Paul was up there preaching. Paul and Barnabas. People are saved. Churches are started. We don't know how many. This is the area. Modern day Turkey is writing to these churches that are there, that are being threatened by these false teachers. Now, that's the first prior work of God in calling the Apostle Paul. He calls Paul as an Apostle. Acts chapter 9, he's saved. He's called. And then by the time we get to Acts chapter 13, God sends Paul to this area. He preaches the Gospel. People are saved. Just the great work of God that He did in the area. And churches are planted. So the first prior work of god is calling paul you see he called paul he sends paul here's the second prior work beginning in verse three he starts this his usual way by saying grace to you and peace it's paul's usual greeting martin luther said something interesting about this 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 greeting grace and peace to you. Paul is following kind of a way that letters would have been written. But he reworked a lot of that too. And in some ways he invented a new way of writing. Luther said this is the first time in history that this greeting would have ever been heard. From Paul's pen. From Paul's. Because this is not the normal way. In letters in the Roman world you would have started something like. Rejoice! 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 And yet we see Paul time and time starting his letters by saying grace, peace, grace, peace. And notice it's grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see him putting them together again. He's connecting them again. But this grace, this free gift of God, it's what's what's received. This peace that comes from God. It's a peace that begins with a peace of conscience. Because the war between the sinner and God is over in Christ over in christ paul will say to the romans in romans chapter 5 verse 1 that we have peace with god we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ and that's what happens when the gospel comes i can tell you i remember i remember the agitation of my soul i remember the agony I remember just in my thinking and my feeling, I remember, and I remember when God actually saved me, I remember one of the first things was this sense of peace. It's like like when He saved me, what He did was He quieted my conscience for a little bit. You see, before that, my conscience was eating me up. He's eating me up over sin and and just... but, but, But then when the grace comes, He quietens that conscience. Now, throughout the Christian life from time to time, that conscience can get revved up again, can't it? It can get revved up again. So I continually need to understand this grace and peace. But it's found in the Gospel and it's found in Christ. Now, Paul's going to deal with this a little later in the letter. He is. But he says, grace to you and peace. Notice this, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ connecting them. Now notice what he says about Christ. He says earlier, he talks about the Father. In his calling, it's the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. Now, in this second prior work, which is salvation in Christ, there's grace and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, this is referring to Christ, who gave Himself for our sins. He gave himself up for us. It's beautiful language. It's beautiful language. The preposition for, who bears, is is is, is 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 there's this signifying of what's at behind this is an old testament, old covenant understanding of sacrifice. It's it's the backdrop of all that Old Covenant sacrifice. And it's Christ who comes as the ultimate sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. And what did He do? He gave Himself up for us. Forgiveness of sins? Yes. That's part of it. But there's also another aspect to this in which we've dealt with. We dealt with it in our men's study and going through Packer for a little bit, but then one of the communion services a while back, we dealt with this word called propitiation. What did that word mean? It means Christ was set forth as a sacrifice, and in his death, in his sacrifice, he appeased the wrath of God. The wrath of God was satisfied with the death of Christ. Did he give himself up so that our sins could be forgiven? Yes, he did. Did he give himself up so that in his death and in his shedding blood, God's wrath would be turned from you as an unbeliever and poured out on him? Yes, he did. In other words, he died as a substitute. Behindness would be passages like we see in Isaiah chapter 53, where in verse 4, the prophet uses the idea of bearing our sins. And in verse 6 of Isaiah 53, it's, uh, laid on Him. And then again in verse 12, bore the sins of many. He took on our sins. And notice the language. He did this. He gave Himself for our sins. You remember what Jesus said about His death? He said something along these lines. You remember this? He said, no man takes my life. You remember that? Were they clamoring to crucify him? Oh, you bet they were. Was Pilate trying to wiggle out of it? You bet he was. And yet here are these Jews saying crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Did you remember Jesus makes a statement about his death in which he says, he says no man takes my life, but I do what? You remember what he said? I lay it down. I lay it down. And remember he says, I lay it down, how? Willingly. Willingly. He willingly gave himself up. Why? Because we'll see in just a second, it was the Father's will. He came to do the Father's will. So he gives himself for our sins, the sacrifice, providing forgiveness, satisfying the wrath of God. God. We see propitiation in Romans chapter 3 verse 25 when Paul says he's put forth as a propitiation. It comes up again in 1 John and John's writing in 1 John chapter 2 when he talks about how Christ is our propitiation. He was our substitute. He died in our place. Now, here's the thing. If you are not a Christian, if you are not a believer, if you are not in Christ, you have no substitute. And if you die not in Christ if you die as an unbeliever, then you have no forgiveness of sin and you will face the wrath of God for all eternity with no covering. But when you come to Christ and you turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, you have forgiveness of sin. He gave Himself for us. But not only that, he took God's wrath so that you don't have to. Ah, we could we 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 could trace this down. I, I, I'll just go this far with it. You remember when he cries out on the cross? You remember when he says it is finished? It is finished. What is finished? What is finished is him giving himself up for us. You remember when he cries out on that too? Before they, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You remember that cry on the cross? The wrath of God's being poured out on him so much so that our Lord and Savior on the cross cries out to his Father, Why have you forsaken me? He gave himself up for us. I think it's the writer of Hebrews says. If he didn't spare his son, what makes you think he'll spare you if you don't turn to Christ? You see it? You don't turn to Christ, you are facing the wrath of a holy and righteous God. Not just for a moment but for the rest of eternity. But it doesn't have to be that way, does it? Why? He gave Himself up for us. You see, this this is the second great prior work. He gave Himself up for us. And notice what He says. He did this to deliver us for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age. It's an interesting way Paul puts it. This age, which by the way is evil. It's present evil age. It's evil, isn't it? It's an interesting way that Paul puts it. He's, he's, he's delivering us. Don't think delivery here in the sense of being removed. It's not it. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, you come to Christ and then you're removed from it. You're just pulled out of it. No. What he's saying is that you've, you've been. he's given himself up for us to deliver us, to separate us from this evil world, from this evil age. So we live in it. We're among it. We're of the world. We're in the world, but not of the world, right? We're living as believers, but we're separated from it because we don't live like them. We don't think like them. We don't do the things they do. Right? He's separated out for himself a people in the midst of this sinful, rebellious world. And we're to live like those people. But he's delivered us. This present evil age has no power over us, has no authority over us, has no dominion over us. So why do we give it? The only power it has over us is what we give it. Why are we scared of it, right? Why are we scared of it? We flee to Christ. He's already defeated it. He's already conquered it. John says it's passing away before our very eyes. But then notice how he closes this. It's all this according to the will of God, our God and Father. This is all according to his will. It was his plan. So his his great work in Paul and Barnabas preaching the gospel, churches being planted, people being saved, All of this, these two prior works, he calls Paul and then he provides salvation in Christ all according to the will of our God and Father. And Then he closes with this, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. All according to his will, to his glory. All of this is because God is a gracious God. All of this because God was pleased to do this none of this because you and I were just so good none of this because you and I were just man we, we were it and God just had to have us you see Paul understands his own apostleships by the grace of God I mean who was Paul Who was Paul before Christ? Who was Paul after Christ? See? Salvation in Christ. Why? Because God thought we were worthy? No. We were unworthy. It's it's grace. You see, it goes back to this greeting. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. I will say this about peace, though. One last thing about this peace. Peace if you don't have peace right now. Because one of the things I remember being confronted with the gospel before I was actually converted, I remember what brought great agitation to my mind was actually hearing the gospel. It was actually hearing the word of God. It agitated me. And if that's the case, If it's it's bringing up something and it's agitating you, or it's bringing up something and there's great conviction there, you don't have peace with him. You need to turn to him, and you will have peace. So, the great work that God did in Galatia, and Paul and Barnabas, this great work, underneath it, these two prior works, calling Paul as an apostle providing salvation in Christ, right? So, where's our place in that? Now, as I've mentioned, the office of apostles no more. I do not believe that there's an office of an apostle. I know there are some groups that do. I don't believe. I just don't think that bears out in the New Testament. But what I do believe is this, and let me reverse the order, Okay? All right, because we've talked about prior work calling Paul, right? And then second prior work, salvation, right? Because that's the way it is in the text. That's the way Paul laid it out. But let me close by just reversing that and thinking about us, thinking about where's our place in this. Where our place is in this is first and foremost to be saved, To be saved. I can do nothing for Christ. I can do nothing for Him. I can do nothing. Unless first there's the grace of God in my life. And I'm saved. Now when I say do nothing, I'm not saying that you can't do good things and people don't do good works that are Christian. What I'm saying is in the sense of Isaiah. My best that I can do is nothing but filthy rags, spiritually speaking. What I'm talking about is spiritually speaking. I'm going to offer Him good works and say, here, here it is. At the end of the day, I hope good outweighs the bad. You know, a lot of people live that way. A lot of people think that way. A lot of people in Bible-believing churches believe that. At the end of the day, gee, I just hope the good outweighs the bad. Well, if that's your thinking, you've bought into another gospel. You're not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the way it's going to work out. So the first thing... First thing in understanding my place in this is am I a believer? Am I a Christian? Am I saved? Am I a blood-bought believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Has He saved me? Has He saved me by giving up His Son or by the Son giving up Himself for me? And have I turned from my sin and put my faith and trust in Christ alone? That's it. He died, was buried, and raised the third day. That's it. Am I saved? Am I Christian? Which then gets to the second. but was the first, but you see I'm reversing it, right? So am I saved? Am I Christian? Which then gets to the second one. If I am saved and I am Christian, he's called me. Now, he did not called me to be an apostle. If I stand up before you one day and, or you know, one Sunday and say, I think, I think, I think Christ has called me to be an apostle then just commit me. Run from me. Because something's wrong. He's called us, though. Because He's called all believers to do something. And He's called us all, in the big picture of things, He's called us all to be in the process of making disciples. Right? He's called us all to be in that. Now, we have... Different ways of doing that, or you know, involvement in that, and using my gifts in that. But, 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 what he's he's called us to do is make disciples, right? He saved me. I am to be a witness for Christ. I am to speak of Christ, right? He's called us to do that. What's my place in this? My place in this is to trust Christ and then be a witness for him in whatever way I can. Sometimes it's just actions; it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't involve words. You see. But I am to live to his glory. I am to live to his glory. Am I a believer? And I'm called to make disciples. This is where Paul starts this letter. He starts this letter by defending himself in these two areas. It's a familiar tactic. We see it played out every day politically. You know what the tactic is? Attack the messenger. And then attack the message. Right? That's, a, that's an old political tactic. Tear down the messenger. And then rip apart the message. That's what these agitators are doing to Paul. We're going to attack him, and then we're going after his gospel. And Paul says, I'll have none of it. I'll have none of it. And I'm going to tell you, if you follow something else, then what's at stake is your soul's. Later on in this letter, Paul's going to tell them, look, you guys, apparently they got mad. Apparently they may have been mad at him because of the way he comes down on them. But he'll say later on in this letter something like this, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Do you now look at me as an enemy because I'm telling you the truth? What sense does that make if you're a believer? Because ultimately, if I'm telling you the truth, ultimately, where's that truth coming from? God, your problems not with me. Your problems with God and His Word. And Paul simply says, "I'm the messenger. I'm the messenger." This is going to be an interesting study, and going through this letter and seeing how it can be in subtle ways we can give up the gospel. And not even realize it. It's happening right now, and we need the warnings that Paul gives to the Galatians. Well, let me leave you with this. All right, and this is where it—this is what it comes down to. One: Are you a Christian? Are you? Two: If you are, God's placed a calling on your life. Maybe not to be a preacher. Maybe not to be a missionary. But He's placed a calling on your life. There is something you should be doing for Him. Now let's try to figure that out, right? Let's let this letter help us figure out what that is. Let's pray.